0: this morning. Uh, We are returning to our study in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, I was reading about uh, a blind man who made it to the top of Mount Everest. You may have heard that story. It happened in 2001, but his name is Eric Weinemeyer. He's blind, and yet uh, he made it to the top of Mount Everest, and he lost his sight at age 13 from a degenerative uh, eye disease, And uh, when you think about that feat, that is really amazing because 90% of the people who try to climb Mount Everest don't make it. And in fact, a number have uh, given their lives trying to scale that massive peak. And uh, Eric Wehmeyer succeeded in large measure because he listened well. He listened well. (laughs) He listened to a little bell tied to the back of one of his teammates in front of him so he would know which direction to go. He also listened to their commands when they would tell him two feet to your right is a precipice, don't go there, and they would guide him clear to the top. He would know the direction to go and the direction not to go, which I think would be very vital on Mount Everest. He also listened to the sound his ice pick made in the ice, and he could tell whether or not the ice was safe to cross. And, uh, you know, all of us are on this journey, on this climb called life, and it can be perilous from time to time, and we don't have all of the understanding that we need to get through life, and yet listening can make all of the difference. And so today you have the hard job here, and that is to listen, as uh, God's word is proclaimed here this morning. Another aspect of listening is to discern. Uh, You know, oftentimes uh, we count on our intuition to make decisions. Now, let me give you a little puzzle, uh, intuitive puzzle, if you will, and it was developed by a Nobel-winning economist named Daniel Kahneman, and he uses this little puzzle to instruct us to just use your intuition how to solve it. So if you have a pencil and a piece of paper to write on, I want you to write the answer to this puzzle. Okay, We have a baseball bat and a baseball. Okay. And uh, they cost a dollar ten, a dollar ten for a bat and a ball, but the bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Quick, write your answer down. Remember, okay, the bat and ball cost a dollar ten. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much is the ball? And uh, <clears throat> Daniel Kahneman, he writes about this in his book Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, he said the distinctive mark of this puzzle that it evokes an answer that is intuitive, appealing, and most of the time wrong. When I first took this, I was wrong because I said the ball cost ten cents that 's an intuitive answer. Uh, now, those of you who are math majors, you know the answer already, or if you 've seen this before, but if the ball did cost ten cents, the total cost would be a dollar twenty ten cents for the ball and a dollar ten for the bat. Because remember, in the puzzle, it said the bat cost $1 more than the ball. The correct answer is 5 cents. If you wrote down 10 cents, you are in good company, because according to Dr. Kahneman's research, more than 50% of the students at Harvard, MIT, and Princeton gave the wrong answer. At less selective universities, over 80% of the students failed the puzzle, which is what I did. I failed it the first time around. Kahneman notes that solving the puzzle doesn't depend on intelligence as much as it depends on our willingness to slow down, focus intently, and pay attention. And so that seems to be the challenge in the fast-paced life that we all live in. And, you know, throughout the Bible and the history of the church, many writers have also emphasized how important it is to slow down, focus intently, and pay attention in our walk with Christ— As Dr. Kinneman's research proves, paying attention often does not come naturally to us. We have to work at paying attention. And this is especially critical when we come to God's Word. And this morning we come to a section of God's Word where if you have been with us, you recognize we are in the portion of the little letter of Ephesians, which is the applicational portion, chapters 4, 5, and 6, If you remember the structure of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul first writes about our great position, the wealth we have in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and now in 4, 5, and 6, he is saying in light of that wealth, in light of the position that believers in Christ have in Christ, then this should reflect in our lives that changes the way we live out our lives. And so we need to work at paying attention as God's word tells us something here. Remember... uh, The book of Ephesians, especially in these last uh, three chapters, has a lot to do about walking. Uh, If you use the NIV, New International Version, they translate that verb as life or lifestyle, which is uh, the metaphor of walk, but... A literal translation of that word is to walk, and that's how it's reflected in the New American Standard Version. But remember in chapter 4, verse 1, where we see the beginning of this applicational section of the book of Ephesians, Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, all the riches you have in Christ, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. And so there is a worthy walk, and he starts with walking in unity in the first part of chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 17 and on, he talks about walking in holiness or purity. Do you know the difference between morality and purity? We talk about morality a lot. In fact, there are many legalistic churches which really want you to be moral people, and that is a good thing, but even unbelievers can be moral in their judgments and in the way they live their lives. Moral is an external expression, whereas purity is an inward expression quality that is resident in the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls us to walk in purity or holiness. Remember, holiness simply means one set apart unto God's purposes. Verse 1, chapter 1 of this little book, he calls the people, he's addressing saints. And a saint is one who is set apart for use by God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. The Bible declares it. And then chapter 5, verse 2, we are to walk in love. He talks about walking in love. And then now in this passage, verse 8 of chapter 5, we are to walk as children of light, which we will talk about in a moment. And in beginning in verse 15 of chapter 5, we are to walk wisely, not as unwise people, but wisely. And so this metaphor flows through this applicational section of walking or lifestyle or living our lives from day to day, hour to hour. And that's how he does that. That's how he blesses us with his work. And so we are to walk in these spiritual blessings in this sanctified or set-apart lifestyle. It is a natural development of being a Christian, of being a believer in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, as I've said, is a marvelous summary of much of Ephesians, but really much of the content is shocking. Look again with us at verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord now walk as children of light. It's a very unique passage, very unique structure of the phrase walking as children of light. Now light is used in the New Testament. If you do trace through your, with a concordance through the Bible and see the occurrences of light, oftentimes it is used as a metaphor for, uh, refers to truth. In other words, uh, when things are Light, that means they are true in an intellectual sense. Morally, purely, it it reminds us of holiness, righteousness. And it's always in contrast to darkness, just like we have day and night. And so it's contrasted with darkness, as we will see in this passage. And darkness intellectually refers to ignorance or error, and morally it refers to evil. And so we see this contrast that the Apostle Paul is developing here. And so we're going to look at the fact that we as followers possess a new distinctiveness in verses 7 through 10. And then we are called, uh, we are given specific direction in verses 11 through 13. And in verse 14, we are called to decision. We are called to make a decision. So again, look at verses 7 through 10. And in verse 7, it tells us, well, first of all, he's warning us because he's using these contrasts of who we used to be before we became Christians. Uh, He uses that throughout this book and in other letters he writes, but uh, he is warning us not to let immorality enter our lives, but let no one deceive you with empty words. Verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who do not know Christ as Savior. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. In other words, sharing with them, casting our lot with them. Now, we are in the world, but we are not supposed to be of the world in that sense. We are in it, and obviously, we need to rub shoulders with people who do not know Jesus so that we can share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in verse 8, he talks about our past problem. Look at the first part of verse 8. For you were formerly darkness. You were formerly darkness. Uh, If we were to take time to read chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, he repeats, repeats that there, or he exposes it there for us, but we did the works of Satan at that time. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We were ruled by the prince of darkness, chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. We were under the penalty of divine wrath, Romans chapter 1, and we were sentenced to an eternal place of darkness, Matthew 8, 12. This is the bad news. And whether you became a believer in Jesus Christ at age five or age 55, this is who you used to be. And I tell people who were saved as children when they were four or five years old that you not only got saved from biting your sister, but you got saved from all the potential evil of the world. And Jesus Christ is to be blessed because of that and to be praised because of that. Uh, but now, at the second part of verse 8, look at the good news here. This is our present position. This is a radical statement, by the way. You were formerly dark darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are to do the works of God. Chapter 2, verse 10, he lays out the good works before us for us to walk in them. We are ruled by the Lord of light, 1 John chapter 1. We are possessors of the kingdom of light, Colossians chapter 1. We are destined to an eternal place of light. Listen to Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let those words sink in. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, let that sink in, that you were transferred from that domain of darkness, whether at age five or age 55, and that you have a future and a hope because of what Christ has done. So Paul writes that in Colossians. The the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Therefore, that's the fact that our behavior should match our identity. There's nothing worse than having identity and not living up to what that identity is telling people we are, because we are not who we used to be. Remember, the Apostle Paul is addressing Christians here in Ephesians. He's addressing the saints who are in Christ Jesus, You are not who you used to be. This was really evident to me in 1998. I went for a second trip back to Indonesia, and the missionary I went with, they had been with the Samangdong tribe, which was a tribe of Dayaks. They're like the indigenous people of the island of Borneo in the interior there, and we went into this tribe. Again, we'd been there in 1995, Uh, but uh, the people there who became Christians uh, some 20 years before, 30 years before, loved to talk about their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I remember sitting in a, in a, in a uh, Indonesian, uh, or the Simangdong tribal house on an ironwood floor that would hand planed and surrounded by mahogany walls and framework. And these two women in their 60s at that time were testifying of their salvation by Christ 20 years before. They knew what they had been saved from, from an animistic. Uh, they were basically children of headhunters, and they were animistic, which means they worshiped the rocks and the trees and thought their the spirit world was all around them. And they knew what they'd been saved from and what they'd been saved to. And that's what light bearers do. That's what children of light do. They understand their identity and know what it looks like. And then in verse 9, the character is described, and there's three words that are used here. Look at verse 9. For the fruit of the light, in other words, the product, the produce, of the light, of a life of light, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. In our Bibles, uh, in our New Testament, of course, the New Testament originally was written in what is called Koine Greek. It was the market language of the first century. And uh, in the Greek language, they have three different words that we translate into one English word, good or goodness. The first one is kalos, and it means free from defects or beautiful. Example, that is a beautiful quilt, or you made a good chair, okay, that's the idea. It is free from defects, it is beautiful. That's one word that's translated goodness. The second word is krestos, which means useful. For example, that tractor is really good for plowing the fields, okay, and so that is a useful item, and that's how that word is used. But the word that is used here in Ephesians is agathos, which means overall moral purity of excellence. This is the goodness that touches everybody in the same way. It is called Christ-likeness. And then he talks about righteousness as the second characteristic, goodness, righteousness, which means we are related to God. And then all truth related to self is integrity, honesty, and reliability, And so goodness deals with our relationship with others. Are we Christ-like in our relationship with others? Do we extend grace and mercy to one another? Righteousness deals with our relationship with God, being in fellowship with him, not out of fellowship because of sin. Truth deals with our personal integrity in our own lives. So the character is described in verse 9, and then it is demonstrated in verse 10. It's this ongoing growth. Look at verse 10 where he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And that is such an encouraging verse to me because it's an ongoing process. None of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. We are on different parts of this journey together, and some need a helping hand I need a helping hand sometimes. And so we are in this journey together and we are, have ongoing growth. We are learning, which means proving or testing what is true. How does this apply to our lives to be pleasing to him? I was reading <clears throat> about the tunnel people in Las Vegas. I've never been to Las Vegas. I don't have much desire to go. But above all the shimmering lights, I've seen pictures. Did you know that there are over 200 miles of drain tunnels under Las Vegas? And that there are over 1,000 people who live in the tunnels. I don't know if you've ever heard about them, but uh, this one writer said, when I went to Steve and Catherine's home, it might look like a dingy basement apartment that then you notice that everything rests on packing crates. You see, Steve and Catherine live in an underground flood tunnel in Las Vegas. By the way, it drains the water into Lake Mead when it rains, which is rare, I guess. But around 1,000 people live in the tunnels. Day in and day day out, they live with the black widow spiders and the mosquitoes, but they say it's better down there than up on the streets where they sometimes get hassled by the law enforcement. Uh, An article on the site Asylum.com profiled these flood tunnel dwellers, saying they formed a community united by a collection of graffiti drawn by resident artists that they call their art gallery. And what else holds them together as a community? The fear of flooding holds them together, which has killed some 20 of them over the last two decades. In some way, it's a vivid picture, a metaphor for the world that we live in, isn't it? The dark, the danger, the community evading the law. Jesus told Nicodemus in the gospels, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That is life in Sin City in the tunnels of Las Vegas. And so we are given specific direction because we are called, as believers, children of light. Incredible phrase. In verses 11 through 13, We are told a couple of things where we are not to fellowship. First of all, verse 11, do not participate in fruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Do not participate. This is the idea. This is the same word that we translate fellowship. Do not fellowship with them. This is an intensive form of that verb, which means do not have intimate fellowship with deeds of darkness. Steve Farrar, uh, whose book, uh, Finishing Strong, uh, writes about sin in all of our lives. He said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer there than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you're willing to pay. We dare not dabble in deeds of darkness. And notice in the second part of verse 11, <clears throat> do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, that they are unproductive, they are barren, these unfruitful deeds of darkness. We are not to have fellowship in intimate relationship with these deeds of evil. Uh, they can have a twofold effect. In verse 13, or excuse me, in verse 12, he says, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And, of course, our culture uh, has ignored that completely, and anything goes on our media as we have it today. But verse 13, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And this is the negative, expose evil, rebuke evil, makes it visible, unmasks it, uh, and so that is the process of being a light bearer. Uh, I was reading about Stephen Kingsley. He lives over in Idaho, and his family had a carpet cleaning business, and he offered a special service for removing pet urine from carpets. To show potential customers their need for service, Steve, Stephen Kingsley writes, I would darken the room and then turn on a powerful black light. The black light caused the urine crystals to glow brightly. By the way, do not take a black light to any motel you're going to stay in, okay? Okay. But he writes, to the horror of the homeowner, every drop and dribble could be seen, not only on the carpet, but usually on the walls, the drapes, the furniture, and even lampshades. One homeowner begged me to shut off the light. I can't bear to see anymore. I don't care what it costs. Please clean it up. Another woman said, I'll never be comfortable in my home again. <laughs> you know. But really, the offense was there the whole time, but it was invisible until it was exposed, Right? It would have been cruel to show customers the extent of their problem and then say, ah, oh, too bad for you, and walk away. I brought the light so that they might desperately want my cleaning service, as Kingsley writes. In the same way, God shines his light through his people, not to make people feel guilty or leave them that way. He has a cleaning service to offer, and that is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every believer, according to Paul and Corinthians, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is called the restrainer, the restrainer of evil in the world. And after chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, when the church is raptured away, taken away, you no longer see the church in prophecy, and the restrainer is removed. That is an evidence that the church will not go through the tribulation period because the restrainer, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us, is removed. We our presence is removed. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a restrainer of evil in the culture around us, whether it's at your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, perhaps in your own family. It always tickles me a bit when, some, when some, I'm with some people who don't know me, And uh, somebody starts swearing or telling a dirty joke, and then I'm introduced as Pastor so-and-so, you know, and they, oof, oof, you know, little do they know my background. I'm not shocked by any of that. But yet it just always cracks me up because there's a restraining influence there, whether they know it or not. And so we are called in this aspect to expose evil, make it visible. But the positive side, we think of exposing evil, you know, as being really radical out there. Uh, Just by your testimony and your lifestyle, you expose evil. People recognize there's a difference in your life. But the positive side, look at the second part of verse 13. This is incredible. Uh, It says, when they are exposed by light, for everything that becomes visible is light. It's a little bit confusing, hard to understand, but I believe he's talking about the evildoers will become Christians. There are those instances, and why should we be shocked by that? Because that happened to me. I was the evildoer. I was the darkness, and somebody with light came into my life, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, showed me a different way, and my life was changed. I became a child of the light. The Apostle Paul was the same way. Remember, he was murdering Christians, and on the on, on, on the Damascus Road, Jesus Christ appeared to him in this flash of light and changed his life forever and changed uh, the world forever. And we see that time and time and time again. Amazing. And so uh, in verse 14, we move on here that Christ's followers are called to decision. If you use my outline, I have the word discernment there. Scratch that out and write decision. I really wrestled with this word. It's amazing how one word can take up so much time, but we are called to decision. Remember, he's addressing believers here. And verse 14, Uh, It reads like this, for this reason, and that is a formula which usually introduces like a a poetic section, and if in your Bibles, perhaps the uh, translation team said it in versification form, arise sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This introductory uh, formula seems to indicate a quotation from the Old Testament, and yet it's not a direct quotation. It could be a summation of a number of passages, Isaiah or many others. Possibly it's an, a quotation from an early Christian hymn, which the Apostle Paul uses. A believer who has committed deeds of darkness is to wake up and rise from the dead. And, it was in, uh, and since he was involved with the deeds of evildoers, Christ shining on him speaks of his approval and attention, indication that he is discerning and what is pleasing to the Lord. So even though it seems to be a quote, it's a quote either of a a hymn, an early Christian hymn, or a combination of a number of verses from Scripture. And so the sinner is described, or the person is described, and I believe he's referring to believers here. He's not referring to those who are not believers. I was thinking about that. The commands are, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. Uh, I think my dad used to use this on me when I had to go to school. Okay? Arise, sleeper, awake from the dead. And it's interesting how you know you drag out of bed when you're not anticipating something for the day. But take me fishing and get me up at four o'clock and boom, I would jump out of bed. You know, I would arise and awake really quick. Uh, and so there was a difference there because I was anticipating something out of the normal. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to wake up, arise, ar- uh, awake and arise. And then what? Christ will shine on you. This whole picture of not being a sleeper that Christ's light will shine on us and through us in this. You know, really, verses 7 through 14 deal with church discipline. Believers are to walk in the light and in so doing expose other believers of any works that are unfruitful so that they too might walk in the light and please the Lord. Paul writes, well, actually, Ephesians is really a, a mini Romans, a mini book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 13, verses 11, 14 He writes this, do this, he's speaking to believers, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. It is time to wake up, to get serious about what we call the Christian life. I was looking at these windows. I love these windows, by the way. Uh, We call them stained glass, but actually they're an art glass done by an artist when this building was built. I'm not real clear on the history, but I, I love it coming here during the week when the sun is really bright and the lights are out and the light is shining through those windows. And I think, you know, that's us. That's what we be. The light of Christ shining in and through us that we are children of light. So are you living in truth and holiness? Does your life reflect and consist of The fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Are you participating in or tolerating sin? Are you exposing sin by your life and by your words and how you live? You know, uh, as one writer said, uh, we are the only book that some people will read. They will never open the Bible. They'll never read a book like that, but they are reading us. And they are looking and they are able, are they able to see God in your life and my life? It is a good question to ponder. W.H. Griffin Thomas, one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote that, A man or a woman, do they remind me of Christ? Do we let our light shine so men may see not us but our Father in heaven? This is the real test. Paul likens us to light here, to shining stars. The word means to reflect uh, when he talks about the light. I was reading, and uh, I missed this day in high school, but the scientific term for a reflective quality or quotient is albedo, A-L-B-E-D-O. Albedo. It's the measurement of how much sunlight a celestial body reflects. For instance, the planet Venus in our solar system has the highest albedo at 0.65. In other words, 65% of the light that hits Venus is reflected. That's why we can see it. Clearer than almost any other planet, and depending on where it's at in its orbit, and then uh, poor Pluto, you know, almost a planet. Pluto has an albedo ranging from 0.49 to 0.66. In our night light, the moon, our own moon, and around the Earth here has an albedo of only 0.07, and yet only 7% of the sunlight is reflected. Yet it lights our way on a cloudless night. And uh, in a similar sense, each one of us has a spiritual albedo. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. The goal is 100% reflectivity, of course. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we think of the fruit. We do not produce the fruit of righteousness, goodness, and truth. It's the Holy Spirit working within us. And uh, in that sense, the Lord's glory is being transformed and communicated through us in his likeness, When it comes from the Lord, you cannot produce light. You can only reflect light. The world needs the light we have to show them. It is the Lord's will that his children be light in a dark, dark world. There's a purpose for us to be left here. If you believed in the Lord Jesus at age five, he didn't take you right to heaven. There's a purpose for you to be here. If you receive Christ as your savior, believed in him for everlasting life at age 29, like I did, here's a purpose for you to be here. You have a purpose in this life and a baby at your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, in your own family, and those you run into in the street. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you that you have called us children of light. What an amazing thing. And Lord, for anyone who has not believed in you for eternal life, perhaps here, here even today, that they would Make this day the day of their salvation, that they would have the recognition and the assurance that even if they were to die today, they would be with you in heaven forever and ever. And Lord, I pray that for them. Pray they would believe in you for everlasting life, fully persuaded that you are truthful when you said, for if they believe in you, you will give them everlasting life. Lord, shine on each one of us so that we may be uh, all of whom you want us to be, that everybody we come in contact with with know that you are present in our souls. Uh, we pray that they would look up and s- no longer see us, but they would only see Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for this day of life and for your goodness to us and your grace that you pour out upon us and your loving kindness for it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Please stand as an act of worship as we close out our service.